Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. On this week's New Statesman, I have a lot of thoughts about David Hare's new play about the Labour Party. So, so, so many thoughts. And I interview Emily Sargent of the Welcome Collection about their new exhibition, Living With Buildings. There is no You Ask Us this week because Stephen had simply so many thoughts. Last night, I took you to the National Theatre on an exciting podcast school trip. Thank you very much for the delicious salsa chips that you bought me. Uh, I enjoyed them very much from the concession stand that side. And we went to see David Hare's I'm Not Running. So I think we should probably, there's no way of talking about this without intensively spoiling it. But I sort of feel like if you're the person for whom a David Hare play can be spoiled, A, congratulations, you're absolutely listening to the right podcast. But B, just bank this section and come back to it after you've seen the play. I think I think we're just going to have to go plot heavy, right? There's no I, other way to do it. I think we are going to have to go plot heavy. I mean, I'm aware this is very churlish and thank you very much for the free ticket. But I also feel, and to be honest... I don't feel that this is something in which spoilers are going to ruin your enjoyment of the play. Right, so I've been thinking about this overnight and I think I read the script when it was still in rehearsal because I wrote a, a programme note for it and I remember thinking, this is a really interesting play. There's quite a lot that's quite heartfelt of it. The premise of it reminds me of Two Cathedrals, the West Wing episode in which the premise is President Bartlett has got MS, he's going to come out about the fact that he's been lying about having MS and covering up. Should he run for a second term anyway? And this has got a similar question at it about, you know, with someone who is kind of flawed, should they run for leadership? What does it mean to be a leader? So the premise is you've got Pauline Gibson, the main character, whose mother died of alcoholism, who studied medicine, who became a junior doctor, who then became involved in a campaign to save her local A&E. She runs and wins on that, becomes an independent MP. Should she run for leadership of the Labour Party? Should she kind of accomplish the kind of, I don't know, the kind of hostile takeover that Donald Trump did, I guess, in the US system? We'll come to the problems about whether or not you can do that to the Labour Party later. But she's contrasted with Jack, who is kind of, we were sort of thinking he's kind of David Miliband, kind of Will Straw. He's a red prince, clearly. He's the son of Jack Gould, who I suppose is... So I think to to the extent that he is anyone, he's clearly meant to be semi-David Miliband because he's the son of a a socialist theoretician who essentially said, look, capitalism won't work and, you know, you're wasting your time. You're not quite wasting your time if you think that the Parliamentary Labour Party is is the route, but a fairly critical analysis of uh, the Parliamentary uh, Labour Party as a route to solving those problems. And he's clearly a member of the kind of golden generation in which you did everything right by becoming a lawyer, by then, you know, working with the party, by then getting parachuted into a northern seat. But the one thing I think we should tell people is this is set in a weird alternate universe. So the leadership contest happens in 2018. However, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't exist. And that whole, this is a different, this is more supposed to be a kind of a different revolution within the party. I was Last night I said to you, it's clearly a universe in which Ed Miliband won the 2015 election and then accidentally fell into a wood chipper in 2018. And that's why they're having the leadership contest. But I don't think it can be that because it's still taking... It presupposes Labour being in opposition. Right. So I think what happened is that Ed Miliband lost the 2015 election in this universe and then Andy Burnham won it and did like a one more heave thing. And that's where people are are at. Like it's it's kind of the 2015 election again, but under a different set, but with three more years of opposition. 
that's my theory about the, the I think we've probably put more thought into this than David I mean, so has, I think, to be honest. So, I mean, there are really no two ways about it. I did not enjoy this play very much. Now, I didn't enjoy it for two reasons. I didn't enjoy it from a nerdish perspective in that I could not get the bit of my brain to go, that would not happen to stop. I mean, it start, that part of my brain started fairly early on in the first half being like, that wouldn't happen, that wouldn't happen. And by the end, that bit of my brain was rocking around in the corner of my subconscious just being like, that's... I mean, so, I mean, my kind well, let's of macro come back to problem that because... is I do not understand why someone would write a play effectively about a Labour Party that has ceased to exist, right? It is a it is a, a play about not even actually the, the Labour Party of Ed Miliband. It's effectively about the Labour Party, which, um, you know, was very grievously wounded when Ed Miliband won in 2010 and was arguably sort of... Um, put to flight uh, in the 2013 uh, Labour reshuffle and was finally completely sort of killed stone dead by Jeremy Corbyn's uh, first leadership election. Well, that's what I find interesting. So when I interviewed David Hare for my piece about James Graham last summer, I said, oh, poor old James had this terrible thing where he'd written Labour of Love with the expectation that the the arc of it was going to be, and, you know, Labour, we're always losing. And then actually the mood that summer was not of, although Labour did lose the election, was not sort of sad. And it was like, we're revitalised. Oh my God, we never expected to get 40%. So he rewrote it quite heavily. And David Hare's comment on that was, you know, I sort of don't approve of that. I call that chasing the dust cart. Because it's you're trying to do something that's so heavily topical that it risks becoming obsolete very quickly. And clearly with this play, he's aimed to do something that is slightly more timeless but actually has ended up hitting into this is science fiction i think the problem is is that i mean one uh because obviously i am firmly in the behead anyone who criticizes the name of james graham camp uh i just think in the, the play is this, of big graham yeah this, as previously discussed this play is obsolete in 2018 would have been obsolete in 2010 for a different reason would have been obsolete in 2011 obsolete in 2012 and quite and also the other one would have simply been very bad I mean, it had that kind of slight problem I have with David Hare dialogue where I kind of think the dialogue's like, a weevil in the shadow cabinet? You want to put a weevil in the shadow cabinet? Yes, a weevil or a wasp or a wangdoogle. And let me tell you, that weevil wouldn't have invaded Iraq. Right? And that is the dialogue of all David Hare plays in television ever. That is all of the dialogue he always writes. And everyone sounds the same. And like... I think the problem with it is that what you what, David Hare is Marmite, right? And some people like him and some people don't like him. And what you don't do is go, I actually love Marmite on toast, but what you don't be better, Marmite on Marmite. Mm. And what's happened is I think Neil Armfield here, the director, uh, has leaned into making it, he's turned it up to David Eleven. Um, like it, that's the problem. Whereas the last David, um, the last David Hare play I saw at the National was Red Barn, which was directed by Robert Ike, who had directed it like a Hitchcock thriller. So what you didn't notice was lots of people kind of going and Sandra, thanks, right? And it just didn't have that kind of that stagey dialogue quality. And I think you can't direct a David Hare play and go, let's make it more, more David Harey. I also think so. My my objection, and I did sort of struggle uh, not to compare it uh, with them. Um, Labour of Love. With Labour of Love. So my objection to it is it obviously just does not relate to the Labour Party as it exists in, in 2018. But it doesn't really relate to the Labour Party as it existed before then because, you know, the thing is, if you wanted to do a hugely critical, uh, dramatic play about the Labour Party on the 5th of May 2015, there's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of material. The problem is it wasn't an accurate skewering of that either and the problem is is whenever david hare writes a politician a political perspective with which he does not really agree he writes it with like the level of motivation and if a baddie said it in doctor who you'd go really your plan is to boil the seas why is your plan to boil the sea what's your motivation and he thinks, what was the like you know is he is he david miliband is he will straw is he chucker is he andy the the other guy like what is his i mean sure like he basically was like a my plan is to boil the seas level of of villain see i think you're bit i mean yeah i think you're being slightly unfair on the script because one of the things that it did do was give space to the other side of the argument so a lot of the stuff about closing the a and e 
people say, you know, our community's always had a hospital. And it does give the other sign, which is that people do not generally die because they have to have a slightly longer ambulance journey. Although it then does then tip its hat. And I I know you got upset about this by having somebody die from a heart condition in the Palace of Westminster, which takes them eight minutes to get an ambulance. Know, so when like, you can literally look out of the window and like, see St. The, Thomas's. The ambulance eight minutes. To, I mean, like... Our, Flat tyre. Like... At the Kebab Awards last year, and I say this with love to my NS colleagues, but it was like herding cats across that bridge. It did not take us eight minutes to cross that bridge, right? It does not take eight minutes for an ambulance to get to the Palace of Westminster from that hospital. I mean, even if there was traffic, they could get out and run with a stretcher in considerably less time. It's just, And that, to me, I know that that's going to sound like a, but I think that sort of summed up the problem with the play, right? Because at every at every point, it had not done any research. And so at every point, all of the bits, like none of it quite I think that's worked. the problem is I think there was an attempt to encapsulate a kind of wider timeless truth about leadership. But the fact is that I think you do that by having small references to, you know, so you just have them reference, you know, WhatsApp groups or something like that. But there was a line at the end where um, Jack said about of Pauline's decision whether or not to run, this will be all over something like this will be all over the blogosphere by the evening. And it was it was bad because it was it was trying to be super contemporary, but missing it by like five years. And that's worse than just saying it'll be all over the Guardian by the evening, right? Which yeah. would have been a totally, you know, completely neutral line that nobody would have noticed. And I think that's the problem is you're right. It was trying to write about 2013 Labour Party in 2018 and it didn't therefore seem timeless. It seemed obsolete. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I think one of the things that people uh, often forget, not just when they write plays, but indeed quite a lot of commentary about the political parties, is that you, you have to start with not just their, their own internal rule book, but also the fact that they all have very distinct internal cultures, right? I mean, so we had a really good example of that at Conservative Party conference. If Jeremy Corbyn was doing something that unpopular to something that fundamental to the Labour Party grassroots... As? As checkers, uh, the whole speculation throughout the week would be like, is he going to get booed? Are people going to turn their backs? Is there going to be a Walter Wolfgang-style protest? I mean, the kind of thing which did happen under every Labour government whenever it's done something particularly unpopular. Right, I mean, that famous, the Neil Kinnock, a Labour council speech, is full of just people heckling him, yeah. like flat out heckling him. Yeah, these things. Whereas the one thing we knew is that Theresa May would get some form of applause. I mean, like even Philip Hammond, right? Even Philip Hammond's introduction, okay, admittedly, it was very revealing that Liz Truss got a bigger laugh line for well, her being that like... That is a yeah, disgrace. I'm going to reference my own meme to, here's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But... This thing is like, you kind of can't go, I want to do a play that is separate from that internal part Tory party culture about a Conservative government in Britain. Because everything the characters do is partly suffused through that cultural uh, backdrop. Similarly with the Labour Party, you can't write about the Labour Party without understanding its weird cultural tics. And, and otherwise, you're just writing this incredibly mannered, a weevil in the shadow cabinet play. But you're right. One of the things you said to me last night, which I thought was really true, is the character of Jack is sort of supposed to be a, a red prince, but there's difference between very posh, like, um, Labour princes and between posh Tory princes, right? The young Tory archetype is very different from, I went to a, you know, like uh, like a Seamus Milner or a James Schneider, went to a very nice public school, went to good university, and then is now ended up at the top of the Labour Party. Those people do not swagger around like cocky young Tories do, right? Because it's not, the value system of the party is such that actually what's more likely if you meet really super posh people in the Labour Party is that they either end up talking like in it blood because that's how they talked in the sixth form at Westminster because they all decided they were urban or they end up just like finding some antecedent who was in worked in a mine and continually referencing them right it's that you like they da- the, that sort of yeah they have there's there's the same kind of confidence and inherited and indeed not just if someone went to you know kind of in that kind of weird sort of like you know i'm labor royalty I went to a good local London state school, but, you know, my father and grandfather were in the cab. And they all have the same kind of, like, Tory poise, but it's just refracted through a completely different... Right, like, yeah. like Tony Blair started glottal-stopping, like, and yeah. then he, like I do whenever I talk to a cab driver because I don't want to sound like I'm on Radio 4. But 
it's it's that you, you like you have like you say you have all the blithe assurance that you get from that kind of level of self-confidence in your upbringing but you're much more aware of not wanting to be like hello i'm here from the labor party because you know that that's going to be repellent to people yeah and i, I did just kind of think that the the sort of central well obviously there were also prop i mean they're also just essentially like you, you would not close a hospital in corby because right it's a so people came facility. back on me at this and i put this back to twitter and said oh well, of course this is what happened in kidderminster and the point about that is that the kidderminster example the wire forest yeah. is that's the er example of why you don't do that right but also crucially so exp- explain to me rhyme what happened in that because i kind of forgotten so slightly. wire forest was a seat in labor one uh, in 1997 which they lost to an independent a save under the save kidderminster hospital banner in 2001 because of closing down a small town hospital in order to have, you know, a, a new super hospital down the road. Now, the thing is, right, is people go, oh, but they did that in um, in Wire Forest. Wire Forest's not a marginal, right? Like, if, if the Conservatives had in 2017 won 200 seats, right, one of which had been, like, Bolsover, right? Yeah. Bolsover does not become a, mar- does not become a marginal because the Conservative candidate gains it by 72 votes. It's a safe Labour seat and they've lost in a really, really, really bad electoral cycle. And that is kind of the the, the reason why Wire Forest happened is because no one in the Labour Party was going, hmm. well, if we don't... Yeah. So basically, what's the difference between like the Whittingdale Hospital in Islington and Kidderminster Hospital? Well, the, the big difference is, is that people in the Labour Party are like, well, Islington South is a marginal. We need to hold on to that seat. We've got a Lib Dem challenge there. Whereas no one in 2001 was going... Oh God, that seat and we all at about five AM on ninety seven were like, guys, we've also won Wire Forest. I mean, it, so it's it's just not the it's not the whereas they're just like if you're Corby, I mean, it's a bit like when people sneer at people in Cornwall for going, oh, they're so stupid. Look at all of that EU money; they're not going to get that back. So, well, they are responsible for the Tory parliamentary uh, survival. So yes, actually, Cornwall is going to be fine in terms of getting the same level of funding afterwards. Um, Yeah, like that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. That something is not a marginal just because it's fifty seats either way in that particular election. It's more of a like there's a difference between a a long term marginal and a fluke marginal that happens to have been a marginal gain or loss at one election. Yeah, I mean, so the yeah, kind of in an entirely entirely unrelated uh, note, right? Even people in the Conservative Party who are very pessimistic about the party's long-term prospects in London and expect them to lose the 2020 election overall are positioning, if they are local uh, or, you know, or just a young Tory thing, for the Kensington selection. Why? Because they think that was a freak. They think that uh, Emma Dent Code is a very weak incumbent. And the expectation in the Tory party, as indeed uh, with Labour with Bowen Bethel Green in 2010, right? There was an expectation... Was that Una King King versus George Galloway? Yeah, she lost in 2005. And the expectation, even though, you know, notionally no one was expecting Labour to gain seats overall in 2010, was that... um, If we can't unseat George Galloway, then what are we even for? Yeah, then then there would be... That would be a gain even among general losses. Now, I think in the case of Kensington, even though I think... uh, I think in the case of Kensington, uh, some of that optimism in the Conservative Party is possibly misplaced. But it, but people think of it as a safe seat, right? And it's if a safe story seat that currently happens to be resting in the Labour column, yeah. resting in my account. Yeah. Whereas Corby, yeah, that, that just would not happen. That would not happen, right? You also wouldn't have a by-election in which there was a save this hospital uh, candidate and the opposition party. Like, so what is is the argument in this timeline that in the 2012 uh, Corby by-election, which weirdly still happens, right? So the timeline hasn't diverged at that point. Louise Mensch still exists. Louise in this Mensch alternate still exists reality, in this timeline. Yes. The, the Labour Party goes, do you know what? I, I mean, then Ed Miliband went, oh, no, we, we can't be against closing this local hospital in a by-election. I mean, that would be crazy. No political party ever in the history of by-elections has ever done that in a in, in opposition, right? You just, I mean... Yes, that is a good point. If you think that the Tory candidate presumes in favour of closing the hospital, she was running a save the NHS hospital. You can't imagine the Labour candidate coming up going, I, I actually, I'm agnostic on the hospital. I, I could take it or leave it. Yeah, I mean, this is... It's like, like, particularly seeing as you have, you you essentially have to believe for this timeline to work that at the point that Heidi Alexander is running around Lewisham being like, if the government closes my hospital, I'll cut you. 
um, yeah, then, then, yeah. And but the Labour candidate in the Midlands is the Labor, going, yeah, yeah the, I mean, our hospital is really such a good thing. Yeah, it's just like, it's just like it, it, it defies all credulity to think that that could happen. And that is not the only thing which defies credulity. OK, so the, the premise of the end is that actually she can run for the Labour leadership because despite having been an independent MP now for six years, well, she got re-elected, which again is quite good for an independent MP, so she must be working that constituency pretty hard. And this hard. is the other thing about Wyatt Forest, right, is the reason why he was re-elected essentially so many times is in 2001 obviously no one in the conservative party expected to win back seats mm-hmm. so they there was a kind of i can't remember if they ran or didn't yeah if they run notionally ran notionally or simply didn't run at all but there was essentially a like look if you're trying to hurt the this hege- hegemonic labor government you're going to vote for the safe kid minister hospital thing with and that was the same in 2005, which is why... So they whiffed uh, it. So basically it was, Bobby was... It was, was Labour re-elect. versus Independent. Okay. Yeah. And so, in 2010, yeah. when the Tories went, no, 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 we're back as a serious force, guys. We're going to yeah. we're gonna take back this seat, which is essentially a Tory seat anyway. Uh, they, they duly did take it back. But again, that wouldn't happen in Corby because it's a marginal seat which picks the government. Okay, so she. it turns out the reason that she's able to run for the leadership of the Labour Party is because she has secretly joined the Labour Party 18 months earlier. And there's a great bit of dialogue where they go, uh, Jack goes, don't we have a national register? And you think, I'll tell you what, journalism has really whiffed this one if we haven't been able to find out that this person has joined, who might run for the, There's supposed to be this huge media clamour about whether or not she's going to run for the leadership of the Labour Party. No one has managed to find out from anywhere that she's actually been a member of it for 18 months and she says ah yes the local clp chair is a friend and like implies that she's been secretly put on some local role that hasn't then gone to the national register and this was the point at which i could just you were sort of (laughs) you were kind of it looked like you were suffering a sort of low slow moving fit uh, as you sort of just i could see your shoulders going up and down as you wanted to like argue with them and shout you can't do that so what i found irksome about this right i mean there are a number of things i found irksome about about the 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 plot as yeah. listeners will be aware um but <laughs> so you can so the one of the problems the conservative party has is it's a the cchq has very little power it's appointed by the prime minister who can effectively appoint the chairman at will and can create a majority on the conservative equivalent of the nec at, at will right so the so the the uh, the conservative leader even one as weak as Theresa May is always an absolute monarch whereas the Labour leader even one as strong as Jeremy Corbyn is only ever a medieval one with various barons that they they have got to bring some kind of accord to but the other problem the Conservatives have is that every association has its own constitution many of them still do not do direct debits you can join via checks there is no you know, <laughs> na- you know like yeah so they're I mean, there's partly when they go, we're not releasing membership figures. It's partly because they know that the number will be low. But it is also that I am never... The reason why I'm always suspicious of stories about surges is ultimately the Conservative Party doesn't know for certain how many members it has because it's very difficult, in short of it, having a leadership election for it to compel local parties to tell it anything. The Labour Party does not work that way. It particularly did not work that way in this weird timeline in which Jeremy Corbyn is not leader of the party. You can join locally. Evelyn lost. Yeah. Andy Burnham. You can well, and then fell into a wood chipper. You can either join locally and you know be fed up to the national party, or join locally nationally and be fed down. But crucially, the 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 line that process happens right. There's not like a secret bag of members that CLP chairs are allowed to go. No, no, no. The NEC doesn't know about this. That's not how the Labour Party works. Also, like as Frank Field is currently finding out. The Labour Party rulebook, which obviously mostly is full of like hilarious, like, oh, let's leave this deliberately vague so we can use the NEC's interpretive power to screw over the other faction, is very clear on this. If you do not have the Labour whip in Parliament, your Labour membership becomes null and void. It does not become null and void following a vote of the NEC. Uh, it is, yeah, like it is. It is, it, is, it is just, it is as simple as, right? No matter how many times Frank Field pops up on telly and goes, no, I'm still a Labour member. No, he's not. I mean, maybe he's still sending the money, but I can start sending money to like, you know, the Ku Klux Klan if I want. They still aren't going to invite me to their tea parties. I am not a member. 
I also do not send money to the KKK. I think you should probably clarify <laughs> that at this point. Um, the other a thing that I thought you... on my previous <laughs> remarks about the group, the KKK. Yeah. You do not, under any <laughs> circumstances. circumstances. Gotta hand it to them. <laughs> we can't just start quoting drill tweets on the podcast. That um, would be bad. Um, I am not even going to get to the bit where she says, and I've got the unions on side, unison are coming out for me, because that was the moment at which I thought I'm going to have to bundle Stephen out it was just one of those with a bag over thought, his like, head. Because uh, at that point, I was just thinking... Um, so there's this thing called a trade union. It's fairly important in the history of the Labour Party. The clue is in the title. But you've, you've decided just not to mention them. And then it's like, no, no, you've name-checked one, which is like, it's even worse because it's kind of like you're like, hey, guys, this plot hole, yeah, I don't care. I know it's there. What are you going to do, nerds? Fight me? I'm David Hare. That's essentially what he did. with. No, it genuinely is what he did. And he gave an interview to The Times a while back um, where he said, you know, I just I sort of don't do research anymore. Like I write the thing and then I go back and do the research after. I'm not that's not an unfair paraphrase as far as I'm aware. And it was very interesting because I I went and reread, reread The Absence of War which is his 1993 play, um, which is all about the Labour Party. And it's a very obviously a Kinnock-like figure. And it's about this guy who's incredibly passionate in, pub- in private and everyone finds incredibly inspiring and just cannot make it translate to being able to be a media performer and the kind of tragedy of that. And for that, he embedded with the campaign. And as a result, it's got that texture. And that's the thing I think is the such a shame here. very good. Right. And there are loads of David Hare plays that I absolutely love. And this is not one of them because it doesn't have the the texture that is just there so sewn into the fabric that it's not calling attention to itself. And every time there's a bit in this play that's like, here's a bit of like fun facts about Labour, it just doesn't quite gel. Is there anything you liked about it? Because there are things I liked about it. I thought the mum was very good. I thought the alcoholic mum was very good. I thought the actors, I thought the lead actor, Sean Brooke, um, did manage the transition between being in 1996 and being in 2018 without looking like some sort of weird Benjamin Button. Like they didn't even bother with, like Labour of Love did lots of different wigs and hairstyles and all that kind of stuff. And she just put her hair like into a little clip when was young and was wearing dungarees and then was wearing 2018 clothes. And I think that was fine. I thought it was well acted, right? Then they did do a good job of seeming young and different ages and all of that kind of thing. I actually quite liked the set. I think the set was an, uh, was unfortunate because it really because there wasn't any fluidity in the scene changes. It wasn't like you had one set in which people walked on, walked off, and it was very much into episodes. That flagged up the fact that it was essentially a series of discrete dialogues, which you know I can see why they did it, and it worked quite well in Labour of Love, which again had a revolve, and they just had the same constituency office, and it just reset every time. So you 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 moved. I think what you start in Labour of Love, you start at the present and move back to the start of their relationship. And then the second half starts at the beginning of their relationship and then moves forward to the present, like kind of Cloud Atlas, I guess. Whereas this one was much more, you moved forward and back within the timeline. But I think the problem was that the set to me, again, it it, it leaned into the grain of the play, whereas I think it would have been more effective to cut across it. So the set did did very much draw attention to the fact that every scene is people sitting in a room going a weevil in the shadow cabinet but i mean i also think if people don't like people going a weevil in a shadow cabinet then they're not gonna like late period david Hare plays although i'm i'm yeah i guess the other thing we should get into because i still have feelings about it is whether or not you would be able to get on the ballot as this person even allowing for the fact you would not be able to be a labor mp in those circumstances (laughs) the answer is no no, because like the thing people forget is that even Jeremy Corbyn, who wasn't deliberately running, the only reason he got on the ballot, and you remember we did that um that event with um with in which Jason was chairing and it was me and John Landsman and Pfizer Shaheen um about uh Corbynism's sort of new phase. And you know, one of the things I kind of sort of asked John is I went, Well, I used to think that uh, anyone on the campaign group would have would have won. And then uh, So John McDonnell, Diane yeah, Abbott, um, yeah. yeah. And then the uh, the Labour then the Labour left would have been better off uh, with uh, McDonnell. I now think after the twenty seventeen election, and actually they specifically needed Jeremy Corbyn, and their appeal still needs Jeremy Corbyn because he was nice, right? Because he he got a lot of goodwill. Everyone liked him. Like, whereas John McDonnell was seen as quite an abrasive figure, people just feel he was a bit of an enforcer. Jeremy was the one who definitely turned up to your fundraiser if you asked him, and brought along some of his delicious homemade jam. Yeah, and I was just well, yeah, well, well yeah, and he said. And he said, well, look, ultimately, the reason why Jeremy was the right candidate is he was the only one who could get on the ballot. And the reason is, is that he had done all of that kind of stuff you need to do if you want people to nominate you. I, he had turned up to people's fundraisers when someone cancelled uh, late. You know, he had been Which is also the stuff kind- that Theresa May had done, right? Yeah, he'd She'd been, done the rubber chicken yeah, stuff. Yeah, he'd been kind to like his constituency neighbours when they first got elected. 
which I mean is one of those things which I feel I say that I think that really ought not to be something. It's a low bar. <laughs> just, yeah. But nonetheless, it is a bar that many people fail to clear. Certainly a bar that David Miliband failed to clear, right? One of the re- really big problems with his candidacy was that a lot of the party just thought he was arrogant and they disliked him and they thought he was never nice to me. He was just kind of came in like, oh, hello. Yeah, there and- are so many people when you look down the list of MPs who voted for Ed Miliband who you just go, really? And then the answer is always... Because David Miliband had never said hello to me in the corridor. There'd be needless. Yeah, I mean, now you can, you know, you can complain about this, and indeed during the deputy leadership election, uh, lots of people did send me very angry messages when I went. Well, the reason why Stella is going to struggle to get on is because she, yeah, fair enough. However, it's nonetheless an, a truth of essentially all political parties. Well, she was seen as not a team player, I think, yeah. which she, I think, has always said is is a kind of strange thing when Tom Watson is such a arch kind of manipulator and schemer and has suggested there is a kind of a, a gendered thing to the idea of being a kind of difficult as a, a woman. But nonetheless, whether or not it's fair or unfair, that is what the problem was. Yeah, and this thing is, under any threshold, and I have no idea what threshold this weird parallel sort of universe Labour Party is in the woodchipper universe. But there is no threshold which that candidate could clear because... By definition, independent has not turned up at someone's constituency. Hey, maybe, rally. maybe, maybe, maybe after Andy Burnham fell into the wood chipper in the terrible freak accident uh, when he had a high vis jacket on, maybe they decided to do the Lib Dem thing and then let anybody like actually that and they let anybody run for the leadership at that point. But then point, I suppose, but no, because again, it comes back to this. She doesn't need to have joined her local party. And, yeah, and, okay. and ultimately, like they are the people for whom the Labour Party exists for. Um, well, I think what we've learned here is two things, which is one that uh, I'm very ungrateful when people give me free tickets to plays. Yes, that is true. And secondly, um, if you are available, I would suspect for free consultancy, should anyone wish to write a State of the Nation play in future. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now I'm joined by Emily Sargent, the curator of the Living with Buildings exhibition, which is at the Welcome Collection on Euston Road until the 3rd of March 2019. Hello, Emily. Hello. So first of all, the premise of the exhibition is that buildings shape our mental and physical health. So give me an idea about what you mean by that. Well, the exhibition takes a look at how our architectural body and our human bodies interact, both how buildings that we live in and receive healthcare in shape our health, our approach to health, but also how ideas around health and well-being have shaped how architecture has mounted a response to some of those issues. So there's a clinic, um, um, a sort of full-size clinic in the in the exhibition. Tell me about that. So the exhibition starts in the 19th century, but it comes right up to the present day with a clinic building that was uh, it's been built inside uh, one of our galleries at one-to-one scale. So it's a structure that you can both see from the outside and go inside. Um, and that was a project that came to us via an, uh, an open call from a, for a commission. So it's a structure that has been designed by architects at RSHP, that's Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners, for um, a humanitarian organisation called, organization called Doctors of the World. So they worked with a large engineering firm, Bureau Hapold and Chapman BDSP, to develop a clinic um, that delivers is suitable for delivering healthcare programmes in difficult-to-reach spaces. So often in the field, you might deliver healthcare from a tent or a shipping container and a tent is vulnerable. They don't last all that long. And shipping containers, you need a road to mm-hmm. deliver those. But also they're not welcoming. And Doctors of the World work in a whole range of different territories. So they might be in East London. They might be in a um, refugee camp in mm. Greece. They might be in a kind of hillside community in Nepal. So lots of different kinds of climate, territory. So the clinic is built to be adaptable, flexible, and easy to build. So it's made out of CNC cut pieces. So Essentially, the instructions can be emailed to the nearest place that has a CNC cutter. Flat pack is what you're saying. It's kind of (laughs) IKEA-ish. I'm not sure the architects would like me to say yes (laughs) to that, but it definitely has that feel. You can assemble it on site. You can assemble it on site. You can have it cut. 
uh, very near to site. You can either transport it as sheets or you can pop the pieces out. I always think of it slightly like the bolsa with dinosaur toys that you might have had as Mm. a child where you pop out the pieces and you slot them together. So it's easy to build. We built ours in a day. It's flexible to the climate, so you can either insulate or ventilate it depending on um, what the climate in which you're situating that building requires. Um, Presumably it's modular to some extent, so you can kind of keep adding bits to it to make the size of the one you want. Exactly. So the one that we have is quite simple. It's the first time it's been built, an actual fact. Um, And the hope is that when the exhibition closes, that structure will pack back down and go out into the field. But if you were to need um, a larger space or several spaces, you can then adapt the design and adapt those instructions to to suit the need of uh, Doctors of the World and their programs. See, I find it quite interesting because I live in Lewisham in South London where we've got um, kind of a similar version of that but with flats, right, that went up in this place in Ladywell, it's called, and, and, and it's blocks and they went up in about six weeks and this kind of because it's only going to be a temporary housing site there. There's a more interest now, I think, in, in ways of using space better and kind of thinking about buildings. In, like that's the idea of kind of modular buildings that you can kind of self-assemble through instructions. Like that, that yeah, is, it's that an is interesting kind of example, in fact, because it's the same architect. So RSHP also um, developed the place at Ladywell. It's part of a wider project that they're working on, on a, trying to reduce the overheads of the construction of buildings to address the housing crisis here. So it's not just that they go up quickly, it's that the design is generous. So they have uh, high ce- higher ceilings than you might find in other kind of low-cost housing, good storage, all these principles. That actually, in the exhibition, we look back to some of those principles that were built into post-war development, that you'd need good storage, you need adequate space. Um, and some of those are incorporated into that, into that um, design in Ladywell. Because we have got a bit of a problem. I mean, it gets referred to as kind of rabbit hutch Britain, right? But in terms of the floor space of our housing, it's not generous, is it particularly in the southeast? Well, it's certainly an increasing problem. And one that, so in the exhibition, we think about uh, the post-war building boom and how health was built into that motivation as a kind of guiding principle. And we have a very kind of diminutive object in that it's a kind of leaflet, um, but it is basically the Parker Morris standards. And that laid out generous proportions for all municipal housing, so council housing, essentially, to have a decent footprint, have um, good sized rooms, adequate storage, places for leisure, this new kind of 20th century thing called leisure. You No longer were you at work for 18 hours in the factory, perhaps, but you would have time at home. Um, and you needed space to to do that. Uh, those were dropped in the 80s. They've never been quite replaced to the same kind of standard. And it's interesting, too, in the exhibition that we look at some of those um, buildings that were designed that era to those specifications, which now pass into private hands, mm. um, an enticing prospect for developers now because they offer very high-quality design. Yeah, I, I go past in Greenwich, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's called something like Mill Workers Cottages or something that that were clearly, you know, um, you know, terraced houses that were clearly built for at the time, not massively well-paid workers, and they are now incre- by London housing standards kind of incredibly desirable. Right? It has been a fascinating switch in that. I wanted to ask you an unfair question, which is tower blocks, yes or no? It's you know, it's a fascinating question, and I think we can chart this sweep of. Um, the popularity of them. They were uh, a vision of the future in the mid-20th century. A city in the sky. Yeah, yeah, streets in the sky, liberating green space around them. You know, you design principles that we don't necessarily think of when we look at them now, especially when many of them have had structures infilled around them through a lack of love, really, a lack of maintenance, a lack of attention. I don't think they're for everybody, probably. And then this shift now where... People who live in towers in social housing are often being moved into low-rise housing, so those towers can be regenerated and refurbished for uh, the private market. So the shift from tower blocks being a place for kind of social housing into a place for luxury apartments. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the things that's interesting about living in, in London. I guess listeners will have to forgive us for focusing on London because it's where I walk around all the time thinking about buildings. But the way that you have got that stark divide between that idea of tower blocks as something that is sort of looked down upon. Um, and there are some tower blocks in very bad repair in, in parts of 
well, South London particularly, but also these incredibly expensive, the ones I think that particularly all the ones going up in East London, places like Canning Town being thrown up, actually Lewisham Roundabout's got a huge number of them. There is, there has been, I mean, you know, that, that's part of our housing crisis, right? Is that actually one of the places where you can build, that it is, there is a huge incentive to build as dense as you possibly can. But lots of the planning regulations, that those places, you know, there's not many, many of those places in London, right? So regulations have been relaxed, you know, in the uh, kind of frustration at the at the speed of which new developments could be built. Um, there was a relaxation in some of those um, regulations. But also I think when those buildings, those high-rise buildings um, of the mid-century were, were put up, there was this principle that they would liberate space around them, that they would be part of a wider setting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's those kind of wider design principles that we're at risk of losing so when we look at places like Lewisham like you speak of or even the towers that are going up in the place of Robin Hood Gardens that kind of um where's that so Robin Hood Gardens was a large very large 20th century social housing block not far from Balfour Tower in Poplar Mm. um designed by the Smiths and quite um divisive I suppose in terms of design brutalist probably quite difficult on the eye for some people and it's recently been taken down and it's received attention because part of it was acquired by the Victorian Albert Museum and it's on display at the um, Venice Biennale of Architecture and so there's quite a complicated relationship there because um, actually what's very attractive about that site apart from the fact that it's reasonably close to Canary Wharf and all those kind of new um, and the new East End I suppose is the green space in the centre of that. Mm. So in that kind of desire for density, we're losing those green spaces that were created as lungs for people living in these very densely populated areas. Well, let's go quickly about brutalism, because you mentioned it, were, and it's, it is an incredibly divisive architectural style. So the Barbican, which is a big example of it, I would say, is both hated by a lot of people and phenomenally expensive to get flats in, right? So it's it's both some people see enormous cachet in it and some people sort of viscerally loathe it. Yeah, and I think there's probably no other architectural style that divides people so so strictly, I would say. The Barbican is a really interesting example, but it's one that I think has been quite well-loved mm. um, by residents, although it's had some kind of low points it's still it's always had that kind of respect around it and I think where the conversation gets difficult is where there is a tension between the people who live there often in poorly maintained council housing and then the kind of architecture crowd who can really respond to the design principles behind it and it's somehow kind of bringing those two voices together to say this was why it was built and these are the people that live here and I think that's something that we try and draw out in the exhibition is not just the perspective of the architect, not just the idea behind the design, but trying to draw out some of the voices of people who live in buildings, um, whether that be yeah, Balfour Tower or buildings that have been um, demolished. So the kind of widespread practice of um, very publicly um, blowing up mm. these kind of structures. So what does a healthy city look like? So you've mentioned green space already, so that presumably has to be a big part of it. I mean, that's a huge question, and um, I'm not sure I have the answer to it. But I think what the certainly what the exhibition gives us a chance to do is to take a pause, I Mm. suppose, and look back a little bit um, about how we got here, Um, certainly to how the principles of some of these structures that we coexist with now um, were put up and to think about how we might employ some of those ideas in the future. One of the things that you do mention is um, Bourneville in Birmingham and, and Saltaire in the north of England about these kind of philanthropic you know, sort of business owners who built communities of, of places for their workers to live. I'm just interested in when that died out and why it died out. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It was um, very influential, Bourneville particularly, very well known um, internationally. We have a set of plans in the exhibition which was produced by uh, Bourneville so they could just send it out because of the number of requests they were getting about how they could create a community like it. Um, and that kind of age of philanthropy um, in the Victorian area, so not just building uh, the housing, particularly in Saltaire, looking 
looking at providing hospitals, schools, um, community spaces, but crucially, no pub. So this sense of... Because, what they were Quakers? Um, in Saltaire, I'm not sure if he's a Quaker, actually, but there is this kind of accepted ills of public health, like what the labouring classes would do with their spare time oh. is just go Freeze to the away. pub. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so instead, they could... Um, they could spend their time in noble pursuits like playing the piano or uh, whittling or, you know, something. <laughs> That's what I think people doing in, in the early 20th century, <laughs> a lot of whittling. I just find it a really fascinating thing because it's one of those things that has disappeared so completely that you almost can't forget that at any point we thought businesses had a social responsibility to the, that extent of like not just employing people, but also, you know, like building a community for them, which I'm sure, again, it, if you talk to the people who lived in those communities in your time machine a lot of them would find that quite paternalistic. I mean, it, it exerted a yeah. huge amount of control over the people that, that worked for you. But it is a very different model of capitalism to the one that we have now. Yeah, and there's definitely, you know, there are vested interests in having a healthy workforce. Um, one in which, yes, you can exert a certain amount of social control. One of the things that we have in the exhibition is plans for a, a bath and wash house for Saltaire. You know, this sense that you have to provide the facilities for people to be clean, but also to clean their clothes. But you don't want to see any washing hanging up. You know, there is this kind Yes, it's of... like those villages that have a kind of massive doolally about someone who hangs their washing or paints their front door the wrong yeah. colour. Yes. I think or... it would be slightly nightmarish to live in one of those communities. Yeah, so there is that sense of a kind of, um, yeah, a social control, a provision for those who um, earn it. Um, needless to say, the people who lived in Saltaire lived longer lives. Their children had a better chance of survival. Um, it worked demonstrably um, to improve health amongst the the mill workers of the 19th century. I think the most, I guess, iconic for a very bad reasons building of recent times must be the Grenfell Tower in West London, which, you know, stands there charred um, after, after, burning down and and having the, then had a long discussion about whether or not it was improperly clad, whether or not the cladding had been done as some kind of, you know, aesthetic thing without bringing up to the requisite safety standards. All of that is kind of ongoing. But how does the um, how does the exhibition speak to the kind of problems that we saw in Grenfell? Well, a lot of the material in the exhibition had already been set when uh, the terrible fire happened. And it's with a slightly heavy heart that I say that it was very... Um, there was a certain uh, ease w- with which that story um, kind of sat within the wider narrative, although the material is very difficult. Um, we talk a lot about other estates and the the kind of managed decline is a is a phrase that keeps coming up. Um, so we talk about Grenfell in that wider context. You say managed decline. Was that because the decline was allowed to happen? because for economic reasons, or was it encouraged to happen by people who were sort of ideologically against the communities or the concept of tower blocks? I think it's not just tower blocks. So Grenfell Tower is obviously is a block, but it sits on an estate of kind of lower rise walkways. They were all built at the same time. And we look back a little bit at the history of that space um, in North Kensington, a borough of, you know, just the widest sense of inequality in any London boroughs you have the uh, kind of inestimable wealth of South Kensington Mm. and then all of the um, communities in in municipal housing in the north of the borough. And it's been a site of quite radical politics and change and also been the site of lots of very rapid and wholesale development. So it was, um, well, originally it was piggeries, which is quite an interesting um, uh, kind of starting point in 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 the early 19th century. Then housing, you know, standard kind of housing, uh, 18th, 19th century housing built, destroyed in the 1960s. Then there was this kind of pause and the Lancaster West estate, which Grenfell Tower is part of, was built. Tower blocks were already sort of falling slightly out of favour. It was part of a much wider scheme involving community spaces, shopping, connections across the railway, because it stands in a in a in a corner of London that has been already kind of dissected really by mm. the Westway. So it has this huge road going through it. So all of these, I think, um, compromises in history, um, you know, that reflect wider social, cultural priorities, all led up to really that terrible fire. The 
Lancaster Green, which was uh, a green space around Grenfell Tower, had a school built on it. And so some of the motivation for cladding the building was to do with bringing it into a kind of aesthetic partnership with that school. Obviously, the uh, inquiry is ongoing onto the actual mm. demonstrable um, causes of the fire or how it spread so shockingly and so unexpectedly. But I think what, how we deal with it in the exhibition is, yes, to situate it within this wider story, to think about it in terms of the history of the 20th century and our approach to housing and into the 21st century rather than just this one building. And finally, one question, which is, do you have a favourite thing in the exhibition? Oh, I have so many favourite things. I'm just going um, to pick one, just one. So we also look at um, healthcare spaces um, as well as um, housing. And we have probably the biggest dolls house hospital model. So it's a four metre long model of a hospital in the 1930s so it's I'm going to say that this sounds creepy as hell <laughs> it's it? a pretty extraordinary thing so it's an archetype of what the most modern hospital in 1932 might have looked like it was used as a tool for fundraising for the voluntary aided hospital movement again philanthropy supporting the management and building of, of hospitals um, but it's incredibly detailed from the solarium where the children are receiving sun treatment for rickets and tuberculosis to the children's ward to the x-ray room to the operating theater right down to the doctor in his um in his drawing room you still haven't made it sound not creepy but that sounds intriguing so if you want to see that and and, and deliver a final adjudication and, and maybe tweet at me and, and tell me whether or not it is i'm going to try and get down to this exhibition it sounds really fascinating it is on at the welcome collection on euston road in london until the 3rd of march 2019 and thank you emily Sargent, for joining us You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.